So if you would turn in your Bibles to the portion we read on either page 991 of the small print or 1263 of the large print, we want to look at those opening four verses. And if nothing else, if people are following in their Bibles, it helps to keep the preacher honest because then if I say something that's not in the passage, you can say, ah, well, that was not uh, there. But you can only do that if you're following in your Bibles. You can't do that if you're not. So if you turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2, we want to consider these opening four verses because here in this passage of Scripture, the Bible is writing about something it clearly regards as extremely important. That's why it urges us to consider these things in verse 1, First of all, that is of the utmost importance. And the subject of the Bible's enthusiasm in these verses is the subject of prayer. Prayer for all people, in verse 1, in general, but prayer for kings and for all that are in authority, particularly in verse 2. And since the Bible considers prayer for earthly governments to be such an urgent duty of Christian believers, then we stand to learn important truths by considering this passage, these verses, in great detail. So first of all, we're called upon to pray for kings and for all in high positions, for all who are in authority. And for those first century Christians receiving this instruction, that must have sounded like an extraordinary command. At that time, there was no Christian ruler anywhere in the world. The Roman emperor was Nero, who was an anti-Christian despot. He was throwing Christian believers to the lions. And this is who, in verse 2, they are called upon to pray for. So it seemed an extraordinary instruction. But throughout church history, at various times and in various places, Christians have a good reason to fear their government. But here we are in verse 2, called upon to pray for even those who are persecuting the church. And throughout the history of the church at various times and in various places and various countries, Christians have had good reason to fear their governments. But nevertheless, note the kind of prayer we are urged to bring before God in these verses. It is not a general appeal that God would judge the pagan rulers and replace them with some kind of recognizably Christian government. No. Whether the political authorities were hostile towards the church and hostile towards Christians, or whether they were benevolent to us, the urgent instruction of the Bible here in verse 1 is that Christians offer supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings on their behalf. And the passage here goes on to explain why it is so important to pray for those in positions of government authority. It's important, uh, the second half of verse 2, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. The preserving of peace and stability in a nation, the upholding of the rule of law and order, is a key purpose of civil government. The Bible tells us that elsewhere in Romans chapter 13. It reminds us that the governing authorities have been set in place by God for that purpose. And a good government will make laws that result 
in a free and a stable society. Christians within those societies will be free to worship God and free to live quiet and peaceful lives in all godliness and holiness. So, is the motive to pray for those in authority basically a selfish one? Should Christians be praying for those governing our nation so that we can have an easy time of it as believers? Well, by no means. In case we miss the ultimate point, it's spelled out for us here in verses 3 and 4 where we're told, For this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So ultimately, the matter of praying for those in authority is a matter of evangelism and the freedom to live a godly life. The Bible here in these verses traces a direct line from government authority through to religious liberty down to opportunity for sharing the gospel. Praying for those in authority is a gospel priority. Now sometimes we in the West in the 21st century, we can get into our minds romantic notions that religious persecution would be a wonderful catalyst for gospel outreach. And certainly it's true there have been occasions in history when the blood of the martyrs has been the seed of the church. But those occasions are remarkable precisely because they are the exception. If we were to go this morning to our brothers and sisters in Christ in North Korea and we were to ask them how easy they find it to share the gospel in their country, I expect they would say they desperately desire a government that would allow them to live quiet and peaceful lives in all godliness and holiness, and they would desperately desire a government that would allow them to share the gospel in public. The full and the widespread proclamation of the gospel, which we know from verse 3 is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, depends largely on the freedom of individual Christians to live quiet and peaceful lives. So how does that relate to us here today in Ballinahinch, in County Down, in Northern Ireland, in the United Kingdom in 2019? Well, here in this nation, God has been very gracious to us. We have enjoyed a long period of, generally speaking, good government by the Bible's definition. For decades, indeed for centuries, the governing authorities in this nation have maintained political stability. They have refrained from interfering in the affairs of churches. They have permitted individual Christian believers to live quiet and peaceful lives in all godliness and holiness, and they have allowed virtually unrestricted the proclamation of the gospel. Our parliament, our law courts, have laid down many precious liberties and freedoms that remain even to this day. Today in 2019, in this nation, there is still no law against sharing the gospel in public. Go to a communist country, go to an Islamic country, it's a different story. But here in the UK, we still have complete liberty to share the good news of sins forgiven and salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. Today in 2019, in this country, churches still have complete freedom to decide who they will or will not admit into their membership. Today in 2019 in this country, ministers can still preach 
through the Word of God without the state interfering or censoring their sermons. Today in 2019 in this country, Bibles can still be placed in many hospital bedsides, in many hotel rooms, and in many schools. And as Christian believers, we should rejoice greatly at this heritage. We should thank God for it. And we should seek to take advantage of every opportunity this presents us with to share the good news of sins forgiven and salvation in Jesus Christ. Many of our brothers and sisters in Christ in other nations do not enjoy such liberties. But we cannot take this situation for granted. If you follow current affairs, if you watch what is happening in our nation at a political and a legal and at a public square level, you must surely be aware that there is an active atheist attack upon our Western societies at the present time. There are people in positions of influence in our nation, in government departments, in public bodies, in education and in the media, people who would gladly abandon our Christian heritage. Now, of course, they don't say that that is what they are trying to do. Of course they don't. They're more deceitful than that. They're more devious. They use buzzwords. They use smooth-sounding arguments. They just say they're simply trying to promote equality or diversity or human rights. But in reality, when you scratch beneath the surface and when you read the small print of what they're trying to do, what they're really trying to do is to take away the liberties that currently allow Christians to share the gospel in public and to take away the liberties that currently allow us to live according to the word of God in our day-to-day -day workplaces and businesses Monday through to Friday. No doubt you may be aware of some individual examples within the last couple of years in the United Kingdom. A nurse has been suspended from her job simply for offering to pray for a sick patient. And a bed and breakfast owner in Cornwall has been dragged through the courts simply because she wanted to restrict the double beds in her own home under her own roof to couples who were actually married. And you may be aware of legislation that is bringing about cases like these, like the Notorious Equality Act in the United Kingdom, which is restricting freedom, like the impact of redefining marriage and law, which is leading to the promotion of same-sex marriage in schools among even primary-aged children on the mainland. And there are various other examples of the effect of such legislation. Well, these things ought to be matters for concern for Christians, but not matters for despair. We do still have gospel freedom in this nation, but the threats to it are subtle. They are persistent. They are like the waves gradually coming up a seashore. And the prayers that we bring before God for those in authority in our nation must surely include an awareness of those threats. But, and this conclusion will underline everything else I share with you this morning, it is surely true that whatever it is right to pray for, it is also right to work for. C.H. Spurgeon was a Baptist pastor in 19th century London. And I see you have a quote from Spurgeon on your pulpit here. And Spurgeon once said the following words. Spurgeon said, The Christian must pray as if it all depended upon God and must act 
as if it all depended upon him. So prayer and action go together. And bear in mind too that perhaps the most basic freedom we have as Christians living in a democracy is the freedom to use democratic means to defend freedom. In other words, the most effective way of preserving existing gospel liberties in our nation is to use those liberties. And the Bible provides us with biblical precedent for taking action. I want to refer particularly to the case of the Apostle Paul in chapter 16 of the book of Acts. There's not time to read Acts chapter 16 this morning, but do read God's word when you go home this afternoon and you'll see what is being said. There in Acts 16, Paul and Silas were in the city of Philippi. Uh, they released a young girl from demon possession, and as a result of that, her slave masters uh, were unable to sell her services to tell, tell fortunes, and so the slave masters were irritated, they were annoyed, and they stirred up citizens in the city to go to the council of the city, and the council and the magistrates of the city had Paul and Silas arrested and thrown into prison, and of course they were in the prison cell, and if I was in a prison cell chained and bound, I would be complaining, but there they were singing praises unto God and praying, and at midnight there's an earthquake, the prison doors break open, the chains that are binding them fall loose, and through a turn of events in God's mercy and in God's providence, the Philippian jailer and his whole family are brought to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And those are the events we know well. But why were they in the prison cell? Well, they were in the prison cell because the slave masters, vested interests, a lobby group in the city, stirred up citizens to go to the magistrates and have Paul and Silas flogged and thrown into prison without undergoing legal trial. But at the end of Acts chapter 16, it becomes clear that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. They had done nothing illegal, and their punishment was outrageous. And when the magistrates, when the council officials in Philippi realized their mistake, they realized that they have flogged and imprisoned men who are Roman citizens without giving them proper legal trial, they try and release Paul and Silas discreetly, try and release them covertly. But the Apostle Paul has none of it. He insists that the magistrates come to the prison cell and escort them out in person. And this action serves as a warning to the Philippian authorities. It's an embarrassing public acquittal. It warns them that preaching the gospel is not illegal in their city. And after that forceful reminder from the Apostle Paul, the magistrates, the rulers of Philippi, would be much less likely to deal heavy-handedly with Christian believers in the future. So let's make sure we take on board those lessons from the Word of God, from the life of the Apostle Paul, both the instruction here in 1 Timothy 2 to pray for those in government authority and the example in Acts chapter 16 of defending gospel freedoms. These have laid down for us a series of principles that remain strikingly relevant even today in the United Kingdom in 2019. First of all, religious liberty is very precious because it allows us to openly live out our faith and to publicly proclaim the gospel. Secondly, government authorities have the power to protect or to restrict our gospel freedoms. Thirdly, we should therefore urgently pray for those in positions of government authority. And fourthly, our prayers 
should be accompanied by courageous action which uses the gospel freedoms we already have and which challenges all threats to them. And it is my prayer this morning that every one of us at the end of our service will have a better idea of some of the things we can be praying for and some of the things we can be acting upon. And we trust that God will be pleased to use our prayers and our actions for his glory and for the good of the gospel in our whole nation. So that's a short biblical exposition on the teaching of this passage. I want to spend a few moments now talking about the work of the Christian Institute. I'm conscious this morning that the Christian Institute's work may be new for some of you. So let me give a very brief overview. The Christian Institute is a Christian charity. It works within the United Kingdom. And we seek to defend the truths of the Bible on current moral issues in the public arena. Areas where biblical principles, biblical truths that have been accepted in the culture for centuries are now under fierce attack from an atheist worldview in our society. It's not just unique to Britain. It's happening throughout uh, all of our Western society, but we work as an organization within the United Kingdom. So we're dealing with issues such as the sanctity of human life, and we defend the sanctity of human life in face of the pressure and the lobbying campaigns to introduce abortion of our children and at the other end of life, euthanasia of the elderly and those with terminal conditions. We seek to defend the sanctity of marriage as God has defined it, marriage between one man and one woman in face in our culture uh, where there's pressure and lobbying uh, to impose same-sex marriage, to allow very easy divorce such that people can walk out of a marriage more easily than they can walk out of a mobile phone contract. And believe it or not, there are attempts at Westminster to further liberalize the divorce laws and uh, often leaving innocent parties in a marriage just betrayed and abandoned uh, and without uh, proper recourse to try and restore their marriages. We seek to present biblical truth on issues such as gender identity, on issues such as gambling, alcohol licensing laws, sex education in schools, and many other areas where our faith is under attack. And how do we do that work? Well, the Institute began in 1991 with one member of staff. Our director, Colin Hart, gave up his job as a teacher to set up the Institute. But in the last 28 years, God has prospered the work such that today we have 40 staff, all of whom are committed Christians. Most of the staff are based at our headquarters in Newcastle-upon-Tyne, where we have a research department. We have to make sure that what we say is right and is true and backed up by the evidence. And so we employ researchers who look at the government schedules, who look at the parliamentary agendas, who look at medical and scientific reports, who gather the facts, figures, statistics, <coughs> and collate all of this research. And then we have a communications department who are there to articulate the Christian case on the media, on our website and social media sites, and also to produce briefings and publications on the key issues of the day. And this morning, I have brought with me on the table in the foyer some of our publications produced by our communication teams on a range of issues, and they're in a readable format. We have briefings on the issue of marriage, on the issue of the sanctity of life, on gospel freedom, 
on the issues of gender identity and many others. And the good news is all of that literature on the table in the foyer is free. Now, I'm a Scotsman by birth, and Scotsmen are known uh, for being tight with the purse strings. But this morning, you good folks here in Eden Grove have been offered free literature from a Scotsman. That might never happen again. So don't miss your opportunity. Do take leaflets on the way out of our service. If this had been a church in Ballymena, there would have been a stampede at this point. But here in County Down, you're more reserved, and you can wait till the end of our service. So we have a communications department producing material, making comment on social media, updating our website every working day. We have an education officer who is there to give advice to Christian teachers and parents. Sadly, we are seeing an increasing number of cases where children uh, are being taught things uh, that contradict the values of their parents and where Christian teachers are being pressurized to teach things that go against their conscience uh, in relation to the sanctity of marriage and gender identity and our education department give advice to Christian teachers and parents free of charge. We have a legal team, qualified lawyers and solicitors on our staff who are there to give advice to Christian people in our nation who are in trouble or facing hostile legal action because of their faith. And many of the cases arising on the mainland in Scotland and in England, but with cases that the Institute has supported here in Northern Ireland, most recently Asher's Baking Company in Newton Abbey, which were taken through the courts because they politely declined to produce a campaign cake with slogans calling for same-sex marriage. And the Equality Commission here in this province uh, took them to court over that. Uh, and the Christian Institute was providing the legal defense for Asher's Baking Company. And if you want to read about our legal work, this brochure will tell you about some of the other cases we've had the privilege of supporting. And all of those staff are based at our headquarters in Newcastle-upon-Tyne. The Institute also uh, has offices around the UK. We have one in Glasgow to represent the work in Scotland. We have one in Bridgend to represent the work in Wales. And we also have an office in Belfast where two of us work representing the organisation here in Northern Ireland. And we seek to defend the Christian faith on the media, in public debate, and also uh, represent our concerns to politicians, lawmakers, and others who are making policies and legislation that affects Christian people in their workplaces and day-to-day -day lives, and that affects the church in its work and witness in our society. So that's the Institute's work in a nutshell. Do you want to take a couple of moments uh, just to refer to some of the issues challenging us in our society at the present time. And obviously, if you take the literature, you'll be able to read more about it. I would refer, uh, I've mentioned our legal work already, but I'll refer to it a little bit more. About 10 years ago, the Institute set up a legal department because we were aware of cases of Christians in workplaces in trouble for adhering to a biblical perspective on marriage, on the sanctity of life, uh, for Christians facing difficulty for sharing the gospel. And our legal team was established then, and we receive telephone calls almost every week now from Christians like you and like me in workplaces across our nation who are in difficulty for their faith. Asher's Baking Company arose here in this province. Uh, the Christian owners of the bakery had in the past declined to ice and decorate cakes with swear words or with nudity on them. 
and that was always acceptable. The customer who requested those things may have gone away disappointed. Well, there was nothing further happened. But when they politely declined to produce campaign cakes calling for same-sex marriage, the Equality Commission launched legal action against them. And the Christian Institute defended Asher's Baking Company in court. It went to Belfast County Court in 2015 and then to the Court of Appeal in Northern Ireland in 2016. And then in October of 2018, exactly a month ago, five Supreme Court judges unanimously cleared the MacArthur family of all three counts of discrimination. We do thank God for that. But there were the disappointments in the lower courts here in this province. And the stand that Asher's Baking Company has taken protects liberty, not just for Asher's Baking Company, but protects liberty for citizens right across our nation. Nobody should be compelled to use their creative skills to promote messages and campaigns that run contrary to their deeply held Christian beliefs. That doesn't just protect Christians, it protects citizens across our society, whatever their belief. And our legal team has prepared this briefing about what the Asher's ruling means for citizens across our nation. So do take this one, and if you want to read about other cases that we've had the privilege of supporting Christian guest house owners, Christians in the public sector, eh, on issues such as marriage, on issues such as Sunday working, eh, on issues such as the sanctity of human life, on issues such as sharing the gospel in the workplace, this booklet will share some of the cases of Christians just like you and Christians just like me in workplaces across our nation who are in difficulty for following God's word. Then I want briefly to mention the issue of gender identity or transsexualism or transgenderism. Sadly, an issue that is being promoted in our society, the false idea that somehow through surgery or through hormone treatment, a man can be turned into a woman or a woman turned into a man. And this agenda is propagated in the media, it's propagated in education, and the public square and at one level you may think well that's ridiculous and it is but it also carries very serious consequences we've seen legislation changed in the UK to give recognition to this type of scenario and we have seen examples uh, where men pretending to be women have used gender recognition laws to gain access to ladies toilets ladies changing facilities and even into women's refuge shelters. So it carries very serious dangers to the public. And it can often be confusing if someone just presents one side of the argument that somehow this view is possible. God has created people in his own image as either male or female. It is not actually possible to change one's sex. But through medical technology, a man can be made to look more like a woman, and a woman can be made to look more like a man. And under changes to law in the UK. Uh, this is being facilitated. And if you want to read, uh, it doesn't go into uh, the gory details, but it's very, the, our briefings are diplomatic, but they do give you answers to the sort of argument that's being produced. This is a general one on the issue of transgenderism and the biblical principles at stake and some of the facts and figures. And this is one in relation to how the issue is playing out in schools. And it is a very serious issue because we are seeing school children now taught that they can change their sex. We're seeing cases of other pupils coming into school 
claiming to be a member of the opposite sex and demanding access to the facilities of the opposite sex. And if you're a parent or you're a teacher, it's very important to be ahead of the game so that as a Christian, you can graciously and lovingly, but also firmly answer those challenges. So I commend those two leaflets to you on the literature table. I want just briefly in closing to mention two challenges to us in our province. If you followed news over the last six or eight weeks, you will be aware uh, that the laws on abortion and the laws on marriage in this province are being overturned. In the summer, MPs at Westminster, Scottish, English and Welsh MPs voted to impose changes on the law on those matters upon Northern Ireland. The Northern Ireland MPs that were present at Westminster taking their seats, none of them voted for those changes, uh, but the MPs on the mainland voted to impose those changes upon us. And early in the new year, in February and March time, new legislation will be brought before the House of Commons to introduce abortion and to um, introduce homosexual marriage in the laws of this province. And you may be saying, well, so what? Well, as Christians, we ought to be concerned because God wor God's word teaches us uh, the truth on those matters. And he teaches us that all human beings are created in his image, regardless of how old or how young, how able-bodied or how disabled those human beings might be. And you may not know the figures, but under the terms of the 1967 Abortion Act, more than 9 million children have been aborted in England, Scotland and Wales. Last year, 2018, there were 218,581 babies aborted on the mainland in that one year alone. Now, almost one in four of all pregnancies over the water results in the child being aborted. Research was commissioned last year by a campaign group, Academic Research, in this province, which has found that approximately 100,000 people are alive today because Northern Ireland did not introduce the Abortion Act of 1967. So the pro-life laws in Northern Ireland up to now have saved lives and have protected lives. But sadly, due to activist politicians, the laws eh, are about to change. And as Christians, we need to be able to graciously, compassionately, eh, but also firmly present the truth of God's word. We have this briefing, which outlines the Bible's teaching on the sanctity of human life, why human life is of value, why it's important, why even the tiniest baby or unborn children are still created in God's image. And we have this DVD where we have conducted interviews with 11 different people whose lives have been touched by the sanctity of life. And those people have been in the hardest of cases. So this is not uh, just uh, some uh, cases where somebody just asks for abortion. This is very hard cases that are often thrown up by the media to try and argue for change. But in these interviews on this DVD, 11 people in the hardest of cases share why they choose life. It's not me talking about abortion or my colleagues talking about it. It is people who have been in the hard cases explaining why they choose life and why not to choose the abortion path. It could be given to non-Christian friends. It's sensitively done. It doesn't show abortion procedure or anything like that. But it does help you explain the Christian case graciously but also persuasively in the culture. 
And then we have the issue of the redefinition of marriage. The Secretary of State has said it's his intention uh, that uh, marriage will be redefined in the laws of this province by mid-February of next year. Um, and you may be saying, well, how does two people uh, exchanging a ring in a ceremony affect us? Well, marriage in law is something that is foundational to the whole of society. Family unit is the basic building block of any society, and the marriage bond is at the heart of the family unit. So if you undermine what marriage is in law, you change all sorts of social structures in society. And we have seen changes on the mainland. In 2013, marriage was redefined in England and Wales, and we are beginning to see the effect of that. Marriage is the basis of what we teach children in school about family life. So if you change what marriage is in law, you change what you teach children in school. Some of you may have seen the news uh, from uh, earlier this year where parents in Birmingham were protesting outside primary schools because reading books were given to their four and five-year-old children, uh, such as King and King, which is a storybook, a colorful picture book about two princes who get married and reign happily ever after as king and king, or Heather has two mummies, which is a storybook of a, a child being raised by lesbian parents. And those sort of reading books are being used in primary schools in England. And in Birmingham, parents were rightly concerned about that material being given to their children and objected. And those parents were vilified. And the schools were commended in the media for being so progressive. If marriage is redefined in the laws of this province, then those sort of materials will soon, there'll be pressure to use those sort of things in primary schools here. So the change in the law will affect you and the teaching of your children. Also, in relation to adoption and fostering of children, we are all designed to have a mother and a father, to have a male and a female role model. Children are conceived through a man and a woman, and in our upbringing, Children perform best, generally speaking, when they have a mother and father who are married together. There are exceptions, I know that, but generally speaking, in society, that is the environment in which children thrive the best. But if you change marriage, what marriage is, then marriage becomes all about the demands of adults and becomes less and less about the best interests of children. And since marriage has been redefined on the mainland, we've seen more and more cases of same-sex couples adopting and fostering children or having children through surrogate motherhood or through sperm donors and children are growing up in environments that they were not conceived in and are being deliberately and permanently denied either a mother figure or a father figure. If marriage is redefined in law, then those scenarios will increase here in Northern Ireland. And the final thing I would say about the redefinition of marriage is when you redefine marriage in law, then citizens in that country who adhere to the traditional version of marriage face hostility and difficulty. And the Institute has supported people who have faced penalties in their workplace and business for adhering to the traditional version of marriage. If marriage is undermined and redefined here in this province, then Christian people will face difficulty in workplaces and business upholding the biblical version of marriage I've mentioned the fact that we've supported bed and breakfast owners who were dragged through the courts for just trying to keep the bed and breakfast in their own home and the double beds to married couples. People who were happy to accommodate anyone in single rooms 
but the double beds in their own home were to be preserved for married couples. Uh, those bed and breakfast owners were taken through the courts because of their stand or marriage registrars who have been punished in their workplaces because they've asked for a conscience exemption to officiating at same-sex partnership ceremonies. What marriage rec is recognized as in law is the version of marriage that is imposed on the culture. So we need as Christians to be alert. And I would commend to you two briefings. This one on the biblical basis of marriage, by marriage as a man and a woman is how God has designed it, not just for the church, but for the whole human race. And this book entitled Redefining Marriage, which looks at societies where marriage has been redefined and examines the social consequences and the damage that is done when marriage is redefined in law. So do help yourself to these and all of the other pieces of literature on the table. And before we come to uh, our closing hymn, I also want to say one more thing. Some of you may already receive the literature from the Christian Institute. We do write to Christian people when it's appropriate and ask them to write to their MPs or their MLAs about all those issues. We ask them to respond to public consultations and it is so important to do that. Between now and Christmas, there will be public consultations launched here in Northern Ireland on the issue of abortion and on the issue of homosexual marriage. Those changes in the law will affect citizens across the society, they'll affect Christians particularly, and it is vital that before the law changes, Christians do respond to those public consultations and present our concerns to the public bodies that are responsible. And if you join our mailing list, we will be writing to you in the coming weeks about those matters. The mailing list is free. We do not bombard people with material. We're not writing out every other week. We only write as issues arise and when the time comes, we give you the name of the person to write to, the address to write to them at, and we also give you two or three things you can say in the letter. The only thing we don't give is the envelope and the stamp to post it. But up to that point, it, and it is important to write, some things have been restrained from our schools here because Christians have written in and have used the opportunity to articulate the case. They've responded to the consultations or contacted their MLAs. It has made a difference for good to protect our society. So if you want to receive our updates, if you want to take action to protect the Christian case in our culture, then fill your name and address on one of the cards. You should have got one at the end of your pew. If you didn't, there are more in the literature table. There's a blue basket on the table. Simply pop your name and address down. There are pens available. Leave your card in the blue basket and you can join our mailing list. And for any other Scots people here this morning, it is completely free. So that's two free offers from a Scotsman today. Thank you very much for allowing me to share.